Well, I want to thank Brother Steve. You know, we met, he and Ella, it was, it was 25 years or more ago, and uh, we're in their home, and we were just first getting started. We hadn't even gone onto the field yet, I think, and, uh, or just about getting ready to go. And I remember those days well. And it, truly, it's gone by very fast, um, as time does. But I want to say right now that uh, I know this is true in my life, and I believe it's true in my wife's life as well, that we are so encouraged and thankful for the work of God that you and others have sent us to do. We always wanted to first serve the Lord. We came out of Bible college. Uh, before we came out, we had a plan to go and to serve on the mission field. And through a series of meeting a wonderful overseeing eldership at Forest Park, who is still our overseeing eldership, and through the providence of God and meeting good men and women in congregations throughout America who are still sending us, we were sent to the field in July of 1989. That was our first month there. Well, I actually showed up in July of 89 and Sharon came 30 days later in August of 89. And from that point of serving, God has continued to open some doors. And tonight I want to share with you about some of those things. But I want to begin by asking you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts chapter 11. And we're going to look at a passage there as we get started this evening. I'm not for sure yet if we're on go with our... Uh, well, we are. Look at that. It just popped up in front of me here. And I've even got a controller. Let me see if I can move this. Well, I hadn't got that going yet, but uh, Brother Steve, I'll give this to you and let you work with this for a second. You might have to run down to Best Buy or something. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, Acts chapter 11, what a passage. You know, the Bible records for us that this great thing had happened with the Gentiles beginning to receive the gospel. And this, this passage in Acts 11, beginning in verse 19, just proceeds that. That's what's taking place here. The church has been heavily persecuted. Our brothers and sisters in the faith are scattering out. And that's what happens when we have difficulty. Sometimes it causes us to take a forward steps, hopefully. And I want to begin in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. These brethren here did what you and I will so often do. We're inclined mostly to go to those who are like ourselves. It's a human tendency, and that's what we do best as humans. We typically, with something good or something we want to share, we go to those who are, for lack of other words, maybe in our own comfort zone. This was no different with the brethren here as they were heavily persecuted and scattered out. And so the Bible records in verse 19 that those who were scattered went preaching the word. And we're thankful for that. But preaching, the Bible says, to no one but the Jews only. Let's go to verse 20. The Bible says, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene 
who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the New King James Version in that passage uses the word Hellenist. The original language would bear out that those were Greeks, not, not Hellenist specifically. The, they were Gentiles. They were Greeks. And so this verse is interesting because it further delineates, it tells us that there was some of that group, the language here, some of them were men from Cyprus. I find that unique. That's an island, of course. So some of those from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when it had come to Antioch, they went, of course, to the Gentiles. They were Jews, but they stepped outside of their comfort zone as it was, and for whatever reason, and brought the gospel to those unlike themselves. I find that fascinating. And notice now in verse 21 what happened as a result of that. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What great news to read that the hand of the Lord was with somebody. That's what you and I desire in our life. We want God's blessings upon those things that we do. That's an indication that what was being done was pleasing to the Lord. While we have a persecution that affected the, uh, all of the body, we find that some of them, for whatever reason, were a bit of a different mind about who they took the gospel to. And so it was. Of those who took the gospel to the Gentiles, the Bible says that the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number believed and turned. I like the distinction there in believing and turning. These were people who were caught up in all kinds of grievous sins. They were turned from being carnal people to now being caring people. They were people who had previously been involved in evil living. Now they're involved in holy living, living a righteous life. Let's notice verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. In verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Isn't it beautiful that when Barnabas, a man that the Bible says was a good man, full of faith, he came to where that work was being done. He came to where Jews were evangelizing Jews and Jews were evangelizing Gentiles. And the Bible says that when he had seen the grace of God, that he was glad. It's a marvelous thing for a Christian to witness the grace of God. If we open our eyes wide enough, we ought to be able to see it every day in the lives of our brothers and sisters and people who are being taught the gospel. Barnabas saw it. He saw now that the gospel truly was for all. It was for the Gentiles. And it must have been a, a wonderful thing because he was excited about it. And the Bible says he encouraged these people that with a purpose of heart they needed to continue in the Lord. Things were not easy. And the Bible goes on there to say that in verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so, this is a picture, brethren, of the gospel going out. Not unlike anything that the congregation here at White Oak has done, because you too have sent us out. You've sent us to people that are far different than our own. I'm from Arkansas. In Arkansas, Brother J.C., we eat our fish cooked. And, you know, men don't wear skirts in Arkansas. But in Samoa, they do both. They wear a lava lava. 
Now, I remember the first time Brother Martin handed me one, and he said, it's a few days after we got on the field, and he said, we've got a business meeting to go to. Can you put this on, brother? And I unfolded it, and it looked like a tablecloth. <laughs> he said, just wrap it around you and tie a knot up in it. And I hesitated a little bit, and he said, Brother Randy, you know, if you, if you don't do it, you'll be the only one there not wearing one. And I thought of what Paul said, I've become all things to all men that I might win the more. And so we're talking about people that are really different than our own, a different language, truly a different culture, different foods. They dress different and speak different. But in some ways, important ways, they're not different. No matter where we go across the planet, men are involved in sin. It comes packaged a little bit different, but the beautiful thing about it is, and we can be assured of this, that no matter what they're involved in, we have the very same prescription for that, don't we? If I've learned one thing, I've learned this. The comfort and the joy and the strength of knowing that God's Word is suited for every man on the face of the earth. Every woman, every child. It's perfectly fit for them. Regardless of what culture they are. And so I think back to those who were persecuted in the church. You've seen people persecuted. I've seen it. And it's a terrible thing, but when it does, sometimes it causes us to get up and go out. And I suppose that I would probably be much like those, that if I saw some people there, maybe from Arkansas, I might gravitate toward them, hopefully not at the expense of neglecting those from Tennessee or from some other place. But those, the Bible says, some of them went to the Gentiles. And when they did, great things happened. Tonight I want to share with you some great things that are happening. Because a congregation decided to send out a family, a husband and wife, and children years ago into the Pacific Rim. Tonight we've come back to share a few of those great things with you. We hope that by seeing these things tonight that God is glorified first and foremost. We hope that you too can see the grace of God as people who would really never really have an opportunity to hear the truth of God's Word, be able not only to hear it and learn it, but obey it and to grow up in it. And that's a joy that we're seeing in our life. And so I want to share some of these things about taking the gospel into a remote area of the world that we call the Pacific Rim or the Pacific Islands. Indeed, God is giving a tremendous increase in this area of the world. And that really is what it's about. As an older sister in the faith said to me one time, Brother English, I believe I've got it. We're, we're seed sowers, not plant growers. And I couldn't agree more. That's what our work is. Reaching into remote homes, remote areas. When the elders at Forest Park 25 years ago set us on a course, they said, we want you to live in the Pacific Islands. We want to choose a work base from which you can reach into these remote areas. And so together with White Oak, with your prayers, with your support, with your encouragement, and all of those are important, we set out on a course of going to the Pacific with a plan of preaching and teaching the gospel. This is the way that the work is being done. We report that work through several ways. One, in more recent years, an electronic newsletter. You know, email is such a big thing these days. But we've learned an important lesson from that, and I think that the lesson was this. Even though people who get it via 
email, they read the newsletter. It's a briefer version of what we originally printed. We found that people still, if they were given a printed copy of the newsletter, would read it. And so we're returning back to our printed version of Sunlight in the Pacific. That's been our newsletter for 25 years. We've made some updates. We're printing it and we'll be sending it to the congregation in bundles in the beginning so that you may pick up a copy maybe at the back door or from the office. So this is one way we report. The other way, of course, is through email. I remember the first time that we got email in American Samoa. We rejoiced over an easy way to be able to communicate back to the U.S. We have a website that updates you on the work as well as our family. And then another website for the broadcast, which we're going to tell you some more about tonight. A new tool that we have in reporting is this. It's via an email, and when it comes in, it asks the question, where in the world has the gospel gone? And it tells the place where it's gone, the village, the island, and the country. And then below that, it gives a longitude, latitude of the location, right where we're conducting the Bible studies. Maybe myself or another team member or Sharon or whoever is going into that area. And then it will say, click here. And when you click on that little word here, it'll take you immediately out to Google Earth with that big globe spanning. And then it just, the camera comes down further and further and further, the satellite does until it's right down on top of the exact area where we're conducting Bible studies. It's a way of presenting where in the world is the gospel going. Where in the world has the gospel gone? And we hope that you'll enjoy it. Doing the work is what this work is all about. And it began by the congregation sending us out, as I mentioned, in 1989. It was a Sharon and I. She was pregnant and about to have our first baby, which was born shortly after she got on the field. I think it was within... Uh, six weeks, perhaps, of, of getting, or less, actually, of getting on the field. We had our first baby, Garrett. And, of course, the Lord has blessed us with five wonderful children. They've grown up quick, and uh, we have with us tonight Noah and Cassie. And I hope you'll be able to speak to them. As Brother Steve mentioned, Noah's going to be graduating high school this year and going on to college. The other three boys are at college. Garrett's in pharmacy school, so he's on year seven and about to graduate. Aaron is about to graduate with his undergraduate degree and hoping to go to med school. And then Aaron, of course, is an engineer. He's, a, excuse me, Austin. He's a third-year student and wanting to go into that field. And then we have Noah, who will soon leave. But we're blessed to have these children. And I know you know what that's like. You want your children to, above all, to be faithful to God. That's what we work for. That's what we strive for. But we also want them to be able to have lives where they can serve the Lord. And they can do for the Lord the great things that we see that He has done for so many other people as they serve Him. And I want to ask you to keep us in your prayers as our family continues to grow. It wasn't so long ago that Garrett got married, a couple years ago actually, and married a fine Christian woman. And so they're starting their family. And it indeed is a blessing to be able to have had your family on the field where you're serving. In that way, God really blessed us because there's been more than one missionary family who needed to come back because of complications with having children or, or being able to raise children. But in our case, that's where our family started. And so I always believe that God blessed us in that special way. To have that first baby there, then it opened the door to continue to have the family. There's been times when it was difficult. You know, um, <clears throat> the U.S. health system is, is greater than any health system in the world. 
and uh, Sharon, I commend her for having those babies in a little more than a screened-in porch in some cases. But even with that, we were greatly blessed and had healthy children. These are the areas where we are laboring. In the Pacific Islands, there are over 30,000 islands divided into 33 nations. And so the Forest Park team tries to look at the Pacific as a whole. We focus on countries, and each country has multiple islands. Our country, where we're based in American Samoa, has seven. The Solomon Island has over 350 islands in it, and it just goes like that. Nauru, the country of Nauru, has one island. That's all. And so these are the predominant areas that we're focusing in, and we also have Pacific broadcast, which reaches in to other areas as well. It's a joy to be able to base our work from the U.S. territory of American Samoa. It's a small country, 62,000 people. The main island, Tutuila Island, is about 30 miles long. And you can see that it's very rugged. The land is uh, it's beautiful. We get a lot of rain there, so it's always green. But it is a very rugged country. It's over 95% Samoan people, even though it's a U.S. territory. And that makes it... Uh, an evangelistic field. We're dealing with Samoan people. They are a U.S. territory, but make no mistake about it, they have their own government, they have their own culture, and these are people who are close to the land. They have a culture that's very strong, probably the strongest in the Pacific, and it shows when you go to them and as you get to know them. And in the wisdom of the elders at Forest Park, they chose American Samoa as the base. They knew that living in a U.S. territory would guarantee us that we weren't going to have to be bothered with immigration matters. And they called that one exactly right. We've not been in an immigration office not one time in the country. Your U.S. passport will have you there and keep you there. So great wisdom. Secondly, that country is centrally located right in the Pacific. Third, it uses a U.S. currency, so there was some stability there. Fourth, it never had an overthrow from the government. And so the wisdom there really showed when they began to look around for a missionary family that they wanted to put on the field and locate in the Pacific. They chose American Samoa. And so we live on an island called Tutuila. It's a beautiful place, but I want to say to you, it's not any more beautiful than where you are right here. And isn't that the way that we are? People often say, is it beautiful there? And I'll say, yes, it's beautiful there. But after you've lived there for a while... Because we are humans, we long to be back in our homes. Driving over here and seeing the trees starting to turn and the beauty of these mountains, we want to be thankful for what God has given to us, such a place like this that you have to live in. The Pongo Pongo Harbor is one of the deepest harbors in the world. That's why the United States government sought this country in the beginning. They wanted it for protection for their ships to get out of harm's way. Years later, it's an independent nation, of course, in close association with the U.S. We have three congregations of the Churches of Christ there. These are indigenous, self-supporting congregations made up of Samoan people. The Samoan people are people who are friendly. They're people who do have such a strong custom, they answer to a chief. In all their villages, they have a chief. And what the chief says is what goes. When he speaks, people listen. The congregations there have men and women who love the Lord, men and women who are faithful to the Lord. We're not without difficulties and problems from time to time. False doctrine will find its way in. And when it does, 
You just simply have to deal with it the way God would expect us to deal with it. We've had to do that on a few occasions together with the local brethren. But I'm, I'm thankful to say that Psalm 1 people truly have a desire to hang on to the truth. They've, they've not had it. They've not over been, been overrun with the church and the teaching of the Scriptures for years and years. And so when they have to sacrifice so much to get it, why, they would think it was crazy to ever try to let loose of it. And so we've enjoyed that with few exceptions that the people really want to get the truth and hang on to the truth. We were able to have several uh, group functions in the country on an annual basis. Recently, we had the All Samoa Workshop. The three congregations came together. We topped out at about 250 people during that week-long lectureship. And, of course, um, these are lectureships in which not only visiting people speak at, but local people as well. We also have another function called the All Samoa Workshop. generally takes place every two years at Christmas. The Samoans, uh, that's when they get a break, so that's when they want to have something like that. So it's a little different than our culture here. We typically wouldn't plan a week-long gospel meeting during Christmas, but they would do it because that's when they're able to come together. And so at this lectureship, this workshop, <clears throat> which is uh, conducted by local men and women in their respective roles and some visiting people, we again had about 240 people present at the workshop. Now, that workshop was hosted at the Newly Congregation in American Samoa. You can see they have a pretty decent facility. It's probably on the top end of facilities as they go in the churches in the Pacific. This is one of the nicer ones that, that we have. The brethren built this and constructed it with their own hands. The local congregations chipped in and helped them out, not only with finances, but in building that, that good facility. And so workshops like this are able to provide for our local men and women the training that they need, the edification that they need to carry on in the faith, to continue to press out in the gospel. Now, you look at the Pacific Islands, it's a huge area. Everything from the coast of California over to Asia, down to Australia. It's just a big, big region, a lot of water and literally thousands of islands. And there is no question, but when you fly and you leave, leave the island by airplane, which is the way we typically leave American Samoa, you're going to overfly just hundreds and hundreds of islands. And those islands have people on them. But you're always headed to a specific destination. You're, you're going to, we do, under a very tight plan. We're going to a specific island. And it might not be the first one that we land at. Usually it's not, because usually you can't get there from here with one flight. You've got to go several to get there. And you have to be careful about that because, you know, while on one hand, you want to just drop down right there and start preaching and teaching because you can. If you were in a room full of 100 people and they were all going to give you time to sit down and study, you'd want to just stay and do that. It's an ironic situation that you can't necessarily do that, though, because under a work plan where there's a lot of people wanting to hear the gospel, you have to choose where you go. In our work plan, we're always electing to return back to them. We know once we go, then there's no backing up. We continue to go under a scheduled plan. And so we leave our country by jet, and we can be within another remote region within just a matter of hours. Sometimes we may fly as much as 3,000 miles across the Pacific to get to another country. When I go to work in Christmas Island, I'll clock 8,000 miles to get to one island. Isn't that... It's just phenomenal. 
you'd say, well, how far is that place? Well, you can't just go from point A to B. And so logistics were always a busy thing. It, that's why people didn't really go to the Pacific Islands uh, like they did Australia or New Zealand, perhaps, because logistically it was hard to get to. When you get into the main capital city and you leave there, this is what begins to see real quick, a remote area, an area where people just, they go back in time years. They don't have a lot of modern conveniences, but they do fine. They know how to live from the land. They grow their food, they use the ocean for their refrigerator, and they build their houses out of local materials. And things are a lot simpler. They can get around by boat from place to place. They'll make those boats out of you know, local materials, or in the cities you can find the larger boats. Uh, this is back in one of the villages where we work. This is, a, uh, this is a boat that's made for the village men to get together and fish. Now that's why it's so big, but families will have smaller boats, and the children, it's so cute, they'll, they'll whittle out a, a little small canoe that's about probably six feet long for a little child. They can be as young as five, six, seven years old in that canoe, and what they're doing is paddling over to another village for school. And it's just, uh, it's quite a sight to see this happening. But that, there are people that are close to the land and close to the water. In the cities where you see a lot more people, this canoes will step up to a fiberglass model. They build these locally, and they use these for going out to sea. And when I say out to sea, I mean far enough out that when you leave the island that you're working on and you take off, you'll not see the island behind you. You don't see the island in front of you. So you're literally in the middle of the ocean. And, you know, the current, the waves are, are huge. The swells come up, and so they need the boats real long so it'll take that kind of weather. We can put our gear in underneath that uh, little uh, front end of the boat there that's covered and keep it reasonably dry. We usually will pack things in a pack and put them in a real heavy vinyl bag and draw it up, and hopefully that'll stay dry until we get to where we're going. There's lots of ways to get around in the Pacific. Boats are very common. Ships like this are common, but there's a problem. They run on a schedule where they'll go and drop you at an island for a day. They may come back and get you in a month, and they may not come and get you. Now, this ship will not come back and get you. It breaks down all the time. So we try not to get on this boat. And so people ask me a lot of times, well, why don't you travel on the larger boats? And it's just that. They're on a one-day go schedule, or you've got to stay for a month and, or two months or more, and neither of those fit our schedule. There's airplanes that we fly. These are called twin otters. They're made for a rough landing spot. They're grass runways. And they're a twin-engine plane, so they can handle the rough weather. They can get in an island and out quick in bad weather, and the pilots are trained well. These guys, they can fly these planes blind, and they do. Uh, they're up in the clouds with them. This guy was up in the clouds flying this plane. I was with him. He was reading the newspaper. And I asked that guy, I said, how's it going? And he replied, well, mate, she's okay. And Don't worry. We'll be fine, mate. He's from Australia. And I asked him, well, are you uh, flying that plane? He said, no, my co-pilot, he's got it, mate. Don't worry. And I looked over there, and the co-pilot's <laughs> reading the newspaper doing the very same thing. <clears throat> well, he got us there just fine. And uh, I think I just bleeped it out. He got us there fine, and we made our destination and began preaching and teaching. In the Pacific Islands, there's three cultural groups or ethnic groups of people. There's Melanesian, who are very dark-skinned people. There's Micronesian. They're a little lighter color of skin, still straight black hair. 
And then there's the Polynesian, who are a real fair skin. All of these are beautiful people, inside and out. And when you get to know them, you see that these are people who are genuinely interested in the Scriptures. They want to know what the Bible says. So this is a great opportunity for us to teach. These are Samoan people. You can see they're a little larger, a fairer-skinned people. This woman is uh, from Vanuatu. She's singing with some of the brethren, and they sing out. They love to assemble, and when they come together, man, five or ten of them can sound like a room full of people. And so that's very encouraging, edifying, because they do love to assemble and sing. When we go into areas, these countries, your time is, is borrowed. You literally are on a tight schedule. You're hoping to be able to get into the village and do what you need to do, and that's teach. But you can't do that without protocol. You've got to be able to go to the people who can make the decisions, and that would be the chiefs, the elders of the village. And once you get their permission, then you're cleared for takeoff. To do anything otherwise would be a, a harm to them and yourself. And we could just as easily turn and go into an area where we can't absorb protocol and preach the gospel. Now, there's been times when we have preached when we weren't invited. And that's a tough decision because the bear, the, the brunt will be bore by the local brethren who are there. We know that. But in this place, they extended to us the use of the only building they had on the island. And they let us use it for teaching and preaching. The first lesson in was entitled, The Church and Salvation Are Inseparable. These are lessons that people can understand. If you've got the right church according to the Bible, then you've got the right salvation and vice versa. Bibles are few and far between. And the estimates are that less than 10% of the people have them. They're very expensive to get in the Pacific. And it's not like in some areas where they, when they do get them that they'll take them and sell them, but rather they're just hard to get. They, they are expensive. You can take a, a Bible like a pew Bible that we can buy for $5 in the U.S., and if you went down to your post office to ship it to the Solomon Islands, the postage would be about $30. So you're talking $35 to get a five, or $30 to get a $5 Bible. We can buy those Bibles and put them in our suitcases. And that's, that's largely the way that we, over the years, have got Bibles in. But it's not meeting the need quick enough. And so we're taking some steps to begin printing some Bibles and get them over in shipments by container. At Christmas Island, the world's largest coral atoll, we're going in there about two to three trips every 16 to 18 months. There's two congregations established. Once a year, we're going to take a campaign group in. The, the most recent one that we had uh, was a group from Alabama, largely. There were some other folks in there. Brother Phil Sanders was on that trip from Oklahoma. I believe he's uh, over in Edmond, Oklahoma. He's with In Search of the Lord's Way, he and Mac Klein. And so Phil and his wife came out and worked with us at Christmas Island, teaching in group studies, teaching in adult uh, Bible classes for the men and for the women, also teaching children's and teen classes. And so in a campaign group, we're able to address every age group. Plus, in addition, go house to house. This is where good progress is made, when you can get out in the villages and just begin to go to the homes and study the Bible with people. Generally, they're receptive to let you in and sit down and study. And um, they're not uh, easy to convert, but if they will listen to what the Bible says and study with you, then there's a good opportunity that they will obey the gospel. And so this is one of the work routines that we follow in the Pacific. Men and women there, uh, being eager to know the Scriptures, 
they want to be able to listen to what you have to say. Sometimes we study in English, sometimes we study in English and are translated. Now, can you tell which one of those are my children up there? As I said earlier, it's a, it's a joy to have your children uh, with you on the mission field. And it's been a special joy for us that our children were born and have been raised there. At Christmas Island, presently, there are two congregations of the Churches of Christ, and we're looking forward to a third one being established, hopefully, uh, either by the end of this year or in early 2015. We believe that in London Village that we can establish a third congregation in conjunction with the local brethren. These are indigenous congregations, and they are self-supporting. They have been from day one. There are no U.S. dollars of support in these congregations, and we know that that's possible. It's not the easiest thing to do, but in some ways it is easy because when you just go and help people and teach and preach and maybe help them with some of the obstacles that they can't get over, but the local congregations are providing the support for their local men, we see that as being Bible. In the second book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he was having hard difficulties. The brethren were doubting his efforts. And he came back to them and he said to the church at Corinth, How are you inferior to the other churches? Except I was not a burden to you. Forgive me of this wrong. Paul didn't accept support from Corinth. But he realized that by not doing so that he had made a mistake. And so we believe that it's a good thing. It's a right thing to let these churches support their own preachers. In every case, they can't get over the financial hump, and we're able to help them. But with things, we believe that uh, will help them better in the long run. Medical missions is a part of the work in the Pacific. It's not the first thing that we do by any means. We want to see a congregation established in the area before medical missions is started. And it's a unique program that involves workers, uh, medical workers and other people who come and serve for four to five hours a day. Now, we do that a little bit different because... We want to give everybody the opportunity during these medical clinics to not only serve in that way, but to serve in teaching people the Bible. If it's not a medical worker coming, it might be a man or a woman who, while they're waiting to see the doctor or the nurse, they'll sit down and have a Bible study with them. But also, those who are in the medical end of it, we want them to be teaching the Bible. And so they're not involved in 10 or 12, 14 hours a day of medical they're involved in medical in the earlier part of the day. Brother Tim Ashley on the left-hand side serves as an elder at the Killen Church of Christ in Killen, Alabama. He and his wife are there along with one of my sons and some of the local people uh, doing a minor surgery on a brother. He had a huge knot on his chest. When he came to be examined, Brother Ashley said that's something that we can remove. And so they did. They took that knot out. And later that afternoon, Brother Ashley was scheduled for a series of Bible lessons that he taught. So you can see the advantage when your doctor, who's caring for you in a physical way, also is able to teach you the Holy Scriptures. Places like the Solomon Islands, great nations, that saw a lot of activity during World War II, are still very fond of American people. This is an advantage. They well remember the war that was fought on islands like Guadalcanal in the western province. The capital city of Haniara is a very busy city. It's a city of prosperity. After the war was finished and prosperity began to return back and peace was with the people. And so this is a city that has come a long ways, a country that's come a long ways in the last few years. The church has been established there and was even during the war, the civil war that took place between two island groups of people. But after that war was over, 
in the church having stayed strong all during that time, and yea, even bringing together the two groups of people who were at war, was able to grow and mature. This congregation in Haniara is doing just that. They're not only growing, but they're maturing. They've appointed four elders who are serving faithfully and leading that congregation in a proper way. These brethren are evangelistic, and together with our team, we've gone out into some of the new Outer Islands. Now this congregation is being established on its feet. Our work needs to shift away from that into new areas. So the plan has been from the very beginning to do just that, that we would, with the local native brethren there, go into these new outer island groups and begin to teach and preach. We've been doing that under a very specific plan for about the past two and a half years. Now, we've always gone into the outer islands, but we've not always gone in with local brethren because a lot of times there weren't local brethren until you go and get something started by preaching and teaching. But here in Haniara, it's been different. The church has grown and enjoyed a level of success. And these are faithful Christians, and they're growing Christians, but there's people there who are mature in the faith. And so by having folks like that, we're able to mobilize with them. These are the four elders there in Haniara. Each of these men have been out into other areas on the field with us, into the outer islands of the Solomons. These really are new frontiers for the gospel. These are areas where people have not heard the truth. And so when you leave an area like that and you go to Vavail Village or uh, Maleta Island or any one of their other 350 islands, you're met uh, with a different world. Now, the culture is stricter here. And it's, if, uh, like the Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all men, that's what we must do in these areas. One of the first things that we saw when we arrived at Vavail at the head end of the trail, you drive as far as you can drive, and then you walk from there. You have to hike into the village. There wasn't too many minutes that went by, and there was a group of women standing over there, and they couldn't speak a lick of English. Those couldn't. The other ones could that we were working with, but they came over and talked among themselves for a little while, and it wasn't just a few minutes. They hoisted that heavy packages up on top of their head and started walking through the bush with it. One of my co-workers looked at me and he said, man, we've come to the right place, you know. <laughs> These are hard-working women here. <laughs> if you've ever carried a 50-pound box through the bush, you know, it's pretty tough. In their culture, the women do carry the heavy loads, and they're not slow about it. And uh, so with no fanfare or anything, they just latched onto the gear, them and some others, and began to go into the village. And so at Vavail, it's a very interesting place. Uh, it started with one couple a young couple who had obeyed the gospel back in Haniara, Brother Paul and his wife Gracie. They were in their early 20s. And although the local church in Haniara didn't want to see them move, they made a decision to move. They wanted to go be with her family. We were concerned for them because there wasn't much chance for them to worship together with others and stuff, but Paul and his wife made a difference. It was difficult because they were young. But one of the things that helped Paul and Gracie was that these were people who were on their feet spiritually, even though they were young. And secondly, Paul had a great job. He's a lumberjack. Everybody loves a lumberjack in the village. Well, Paul built his house, and he began to ask others to come and to worship with him. He's a very quiet man, but he would always invite people, he and Gracie, and they kept coming to his home. Finally, Paul said, Randy, is there any way that you all can come to Vavail Village? If you will... I'll help preach the gospel. We'll go to the people. So we began to do that two years ago. 
And once we went and began to preach, people were a little shy. They'd come and listen, and some of them would stay out in the bush and listen. And we had some that were converted. And then we came back a second time. And the second time we came with a team, we went to every home in that village and the outlying areas. There were two denominational groups in Vavail. The SSEC Church, which is South Seas Evangelical Church. It's the Reformed, or um, it's the Baptist Church nationalized. That's what it is. And then the Anglican Church. But after that second trip, within six months after we were there studying in the villages, we got notice from the brethren in Haniara, the SSEC Church has made a decision to close their doors at Vavail. They did just that. They dispatched their pastor to another region. They gave the benches to the Church of Christ. And the church began to gain more momentum. They were meeting out under a shed that Brother Paul and them constructed. And Brother Paul, on our third trip out, said, You know, Brother English, we're ready to build a church building. Can you help us? And I said, Sure, I can help you, Brother. And he said, I'll write down what we need. And so Paul and the other men began to put together a plan. They're having people to come to Bible studies. These people from the SSEC church, they're scattered and they're gathering up and they start coming to worship services. They have some people to obey the gospel and they're gaining momentum. We're staring at a third trip. We get a letter from Brother Paul asking for help and this is what he requested. Brother English, can you please send us a box of nails? That's what we need to build our new building. We were meeting out in this shed in the middle of the village for over a year. Brother Paul and them began to work hard. You know him being a lumberjack, he cut some of the finest lumber I'd ever seen. And they built this beautiful church building right on a hill on the side of the village. All they needed was some encouragement and a box of nails. And we delivered on that. Now, brethren, let me tell you, indigenous churches... Self-supporting churches on our mission fields across the world can happen if we will encourage it and if we will help facilitate them in the teaching of the gospel. These are poor people, but they don't know they're poor. Think about it. That building is so beautiful. It's not much, but it's...